When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Imagine being able to change the course of history just by interviewing someone. Rachel Sylvester started at the Daily Telegraph in 1992, then worked at The Independent and The Times. Then, in 2015, she was named Political Journalist of the Year at the British Press Awards. In the 2016 leadership election, Rachel held a seismic interview with Andrea Leadsom, which led to her pulling out of the Tory leadership race and Theresa May becoming Prime Minister a matter of days later. Off the back of that, she was named 2016 Journalist of the Year by the Political Studies Association. She now has her own podcast, which is called What I Wished I Had Known, with guests like Tony Blair. We recorded this interview at the Tony Blair Future of Britain conference. On to today's episode. Rachel, welcome to Jimmy's Jobs of the Future. Thanks, lovely to be here. What's the difference between a journalist and a commentator? Well, I would say that a commentator is a journalist. Yeah. Um, so there's a news reporter and a commentator, maybe two different things. A news reporter uh, takes what's happened in the day and gives the most concise, accurate version of it, normally. Yeah. <laughs> um, a commentator um, can either analyse what's happened or give their opinion about what's happened. Um, and I do a sort of mixture of the two, but my background actually was in news. So I was a kind of consumer affairs correspondent for a bit. Then I was a political reporter, uh, political editor before I became a political commentator. Uh, so I'm, I'm always kind of in the back of my mind thinking, what's the new thing I'm telling people? Um, I think, I always think I'm not sure that people are that interested in my opinion. But yeah. they do want to know something new. And so there is a sort of, I think there's different ways of doing the job. Uh, but journalism basically is journalism and it's about finding stuff out. Usually stuff that people don't want you to find out. Yeah, that's the sort of classic definition of news, isn't it? Yeah. What somebody wants suppressing somewhere. Um, and but, but I guess most people therefore start out in news, right? Before the kind of commentary piece and the analysis, right? I think so. All the... Actually, some people come into commentary via academia mm. or former special advisors, former politicians. For example, William Hague writes a very good column in the yeah. Times. Um, Danny Finkelstein, who was a um, strategist advisor to various prime ministers and Tory leaders. Um, so actually, I, it's probably quite rare to come into commentary from news. Relatively rare. Um, there's a sort of slight um, division of the two. Um, yeah. yeah, but I think it's uh, commentary is really interesting because you, you still get to meet loads of fascinating people, but you also get a little bit of your own take on it. How's the job changed in the couple of decades? That you've been? I think politicians have become more nervous, more wary of the media. It used to be that you would go out for long lunches, um, you know, some uh, over a couple of bottles of wine somebody would really open up and then they would trust you that it would stay off the record but you, they would be quite honest and uh, that's much le happens much less now it's much more likely to be a sort of 
coffee if you're lucky, mm. mineral water more likely, um, or you sort of text someone and they'll call you back, WhatsApp, um, yes. is the sort of modus operandi now rather than the sort of long lunch. And I think it's partly that everything's sp sped up, the media's yeah. sped up. So now if you're in the lobby, which is the sort of political reporters club, if you yeah. like, um, you're probably filing five or six times a day for multiple deadlines for online, for Twitter. Um, you're kind of operating on all these different levels. Um, whereas when I started as a reporter, you'd really just file once a day, yeah. at sort of six o'clock, you'd do that story. Um, and then you'd be working probably on one or two things in the background, but you wouldn't have this constant churn. And that makes it harder to sort of have the long lunch. But I also think politicians have become a bit more risk averse and a bit more nervous and they're all now obsessed by their grids yes. their sort of media grids where both the government and the opposition have a very strict timetable of what's got to be announced when yeah. Yeah. um and if anyone goes off it they're in big trouble <laughs> whereas of course our job is to make sure they do go off <laughs> um and what advice would you give to younger journalists who are trying to break in nowadays I think you just have to try your hand wherever you can. So I did a, a lot of student journalism. I think that's a great way in local journalism. Apply for work experience. Um, the Times has schemes. I know other newspapers and um, media organizations do too. You just have to get your foot in the door and then show you can do it. And then when you're there, be as curious and, you know, as possible, just always go for it. Always say yes. Always try whatever the new thing is. Yeah. Um, and take up every opportunity because you probably don't get that many opportunities. So you just have to seize the day whenever you can. Do you think more broadly we're becoming more risk averse as a country as well as perhaps politicians? Uh, maybe. I think there's a sort of anxiety even before the pandemic actually about, you know, it's climate change. It's. You know, yeah. pandemics, it's insecurity, financial insecurity, cost of living. There are these multiple crises, the war in Ukraine. Yeah. And that does create this sort of anxious culture. Um, I'm chairing a, a, a health commission at the moment for the Times. And what a lot of our commissioners are saying is that medicines become more and more risk averse. Mm. So it used to be the professional was trusted to make a decision. They would sometimes make mistakes, but broadly people looked up to what they said and usually they got it right whereas now the system's become so risk averse actually sometimes to the detriment of patient care because sort of lowest common denominator if you like rather than yeah. the sort of real expert being able to in and um, and i wanted to touch on the commissions because obviously you led the times education one a couple of years ago took a year to report and so on Fascinating the times doing that. Can you talk us through what, what it entails? And obviously you're now doing it for health as well. Yeah. Well, it's a real innovation in journalism. And um, the UK Press Gazette recently called it solutions journalism, which yes. I thought was fantastic. I love the idea of being part of solutions journalism, which absolutely wasn't particularly where it came from. Although actually, I suppose that is what we're yeah. doing. So we are kind of working out what the problems are, but then also coming up with our ideas and solutions um and the education one it was proposed by um the former head teacher and biographer of multiple prime ministers anthony selden um who just felt that there was a kind of dearth of ideas about education in politics yes. um 
And I think that the advantage that a newspaper has is that we can step outside those ideological uh, divides that sometimes hold back policymaking and just look at the evidence. Um, and that's very much what we've been doing first in education and now in health. We've had sort of fortnightly evidence sessions with all kinds of people. And I've been going around the country visiting hospitals or schools um, and going abroad as well. I've just got back from Japan looking mm. at their care homes and their anti-obesity strategies. So trying to learn from the best yes. around the world or around the country and then say, actually, in a sort of pragmatic, practical, non-ideological way, what would make things better? Yeah. Because most of it is non-ideological as well, I, I find, in terms of a lot of these things. What were your kind of reflections on... I mean, let me ask a slightly different question first. Um, we're here at the Tony Blair kind of Future of Britain conference today. What do you think it says about um, Britain that a lot of ideas are coming from here and the Times? The kind of like traditional sort of, you know, idea factories sort of seem to be changing. I'd love your reflections on that. That's really interesting. Um... I think it's partly that the parties are very risk averse as well. It's yes. a sort of risk averse thing. Yeah. They're terrified of the voters. Yeah. Weirdly. Whereas actually the voters do want ideas. So we polled a lot of the things that we came up with for the education commission and they were incredibly popular. People, two thirds of uh, voters said they thought that the current education system didn't prepare children for either work or life. Yes. Um, they really want things to change. But there's been a sort of lack of reform for over a decade. We've had 10 education secretaries in 10 years. I mean, that is shocking. Um, and I think Labour does have some ideas, but they're nervous of really going all guns blazing for reform yes. on anything. And, and partly because of the economic backdrop. So, I mean, we, we try and make sure we're not coming up with mad money tree magic money tree ideas that are never going to be implemented um but maybe we're not we're less high bound by the sense of reputational damage you know we can just say what actually would be sensible yeah um uh, yeah i was struck by in the commission one of the polling from yougov saying 60 percent of parents do not believe that their children are prepared adequately for the workforce and i'm always struck actually by the listener figures when you break down for uh, this podcast is that you actually get quite a lot of over 50s listening. And I often convince this parents trying to help their children navigate the new workforce because it's it's changed in that sort of 20-year period, 20, 30 years often, um, enormously. Um, what, what do you think the jobs of the future look like? I think one of the things is we don't really know, yeah. um, which is what's so exciting yeah. in a way, but also slightly daunting. And I think there's a danger that our education system all the way through, right from primary school through to university and other education colleges, is preparing children for the jobs of the past yes. or the jobs, not even the jobs of the present necessarily, actually. So some of the sort of curriculum is very much based on sort of kings and queens of England and some figures and knowing the names of rivers. Yeah, All of that is really important as a basis, but it's not enough. And actually... Um, we spoke to people like James Dyson for the Education Commission um, and Anthony Gormley as well. But Dyson was particularly interesting because he said, if you want the entrepreneurs of the future and the engineers and the inventors, you need to have uh, much more creativity in the education system. Designing technology yeah. is a sort of ultimate job creation scheme in his view. 
Uh, and he went to art college before becoming an engineer. Yeah. So there's a sort of art, uh, the assessment system makes you choose between humanities and sciences. It makes you choose between vocational and academic. It narrows down the subjects by A level to three subjects, which is ridiculous when yeah. we need the sort of, the breadth is what matters. And, you know, the skills of the future, uh, which will kind of prepare children for the jobs of the future are those things, the human skills that the robots aren't going to be able to do. I was really intrigued in the commission. It broke down intelligence into sort of three different ways, emotional, practical, and academic. And I thought emotional, we hear quite a lot about, and academic is sort of the mainstay of a lot. But actually that sort of practical intelligence, I thought was a really lovely phrase that kind of encapsulates a lot of it. Because I often look at entrepreneurs and there is a correlation between a lot of successful entrepreneurs not actually being that that academically brilliant not always but there is a real sort of thread there Richard Branson's often so yeah about it he says his dyslexia is a superpower yeah because it makes him think in a different way um but I think you're absolutely right there's a sort of absolute um you know single-minded focus on academic outcomes and one of the things that really shocked me during during the education commission is that a third of kids effectively fail their GCSEs yeah. at 16. So we're writing them off, really. Yeah. Um, but it's not that they're not, they haven't got anything about them. It's just that their talents and their potential aren't being drawn out. There was a really lovely quote from um, Howard Gardner, who's the professor of education, I think, at Harvard, yeah. um, who said, ask not how intelligent a child is, ask how a child is intelligent. Mm. So... Everyone has some talent. Yeah. I refuse to believe that they don't. And it, and our system just isn't drawing that talent out at the moment. And that's bad for the economy in the end because, totally. you know, um, all the sort of Richard Branson's, James Dyson's of this world, um, or, you know, the amazing carpenters or the incredible plumbers. It's sort of like the, you need a mix of, of skills and, uh, uh, and competences, if you like. Had, some people talk about, Head, heart, hands. Yes. As, um, you know, and we're very good on the, we're not very good on the heart or the hand. Yes. And how do we, how do we encourage that sort of ambition? I mean, we're, we're coming at this now from not just a political sense as we were talking earlier, but also an entrepreneurial sense. Um, yeah, we're at the Future of Britain conference. You know, how, how do we encourage a bit more ambition? Well, I think it would be fantastic if you have more businesses going into schools, yeah. um, businesses and colleges, businesses that we spoke to really wanted to get involved, but they didn't really know how. Yes. Um, more kids giving the chance to do work experience, going into companies, um, you know, site visits. Why not have children going around a factory once a year or a, you know, um, marketing department another time? And it could be a range of, uh, jobs that they can experience and yeah. see uh, and, and it's very hard unless you see something to really understand what's available and what's possible but i think in the end um it's also about sort of liberating teachers to do what they actually love which is to sort of draw out that creativity and that um teamwork in children rather than just going through the marks game and sort of yes. ticking off all the books well i've often said that you know thought this that people say careers advice isn't very good in schools and i always think well nor should it really nor and nor can it so let's stop trying to sort of do it because teachers should teach um and maybe a little bit of career stuff but careers are becoming so varied so many different options for people it's difficult 
Of the 12 recommendations that the commission came up with, if you could pick two or three for the government to really implement, which ones would they be? So I think I would focus on the curriculum and assessment reform, because yeah. I think that's sort of become the tail that wags the dog, if you like. Yes. And um, into that falls Ofsted too, that if you have a assessment system that is so narrowly focused on academic outcomes and sort of narrowing down children's options as they go through the system, funneling in them into these increasingly narrow yep. subject areas, which actually aren't anything to do with the real world anymore. You know, if you think about the big challenges, whether that's uh, climate change or pandemics or AI, those don't fit into those narrow subject boxes. So we said there should be a, um, we called it a British baccalaureate, mm. which would have you do five or six subjects at 18, and that could be a range of academic and vocational, a range of science and arts, uh, and you do a sort of slimmed down number of subjects at 16 so that you could then have more time to focus on other stuff, you yeah. know, things like drama, music, sport. Those, you get huge numbers of skills from that, that you know, teamwork, all the things that actually you need at work, um, social skills, um, I, I like the Keir Starmer focus on oracy, on speaking, as well yeah. as on literacy. Um, so I think if you change that, uh, it would be a big reform, but other, so much else would follow from it. And the other thing I would do um, is put a much greater focus on education before children get to school. So at the yeah. moment, it's all seen as child. And actually, I went to Estonia, and they say education's like a tree. And actually, the success of the tree depends on its roots, and the roots happen before you even get to school. Mm. Um, and there's such a sort of variety in parenting styles. The only way to really level that playing field is to have a kind of properly um, integrated sort of more educational approach. I'm, I'm smiling if you're watching on YouTube, because that was going to be one of my final oh, questions on the education, but it was about Estonia. But, but, more, but partly that, but also the... Um, they use technology a great way, yeah. sort of. Age. Can you talk us a little bit through what you saw there? So it's amazing. They, ha uh, I went to one school and they were learning robotics from the age of seven. Yeah. These little children were all absolutely coding is sort of old hat then, because actually now the machines are going to do the coding. Yeah. But they were learning to use robots. They were doing classes in virtual reality. So they were going to the rainforest in geography in yeah. virtual reality. In fact, one of the teachers said she'd been absolutely terrified because this incredibly lifelike snake came out of the forest <laughs> and she's got an absolute phobia of snakes. But when they're studying English, they went to London in virtual reality. Um, fascinating. And so it sort of brings, and you know, you don't want to do it the whole time. You don't want them all stuck in VR glasses the whole time, but to bring learning to life. And then the other thing is they have reshaped their curriculum around what they call 21st century competencies, which is all the stuff we've been talking about, creativity, communication, teamwork, um, entrepreneurship is explicitly that in the curriculum. Uh, and they're actually the best system in Europe, according to the OECD. So it's not dumbing down, quite the opposite, it's dumbing up. Yeah. Um and I want to talk a bit about your podcast as well, because one of the key kind of skills, which is incredibly difficult to teach, is resilience. Um, but you have this amazing podcast, which goes about the challenging people 
the challenging times that people had early in their life. Can you just tell us a little bit about it? Yeah, so it's called What I Wish I'd Known. Uh, and I do it with my Times colleague, Alice Thompson. And we talk to extraordinary people who have overcome some kind of trauma or adversity in their early mm-hmm. years. Uh, and it's incredible. When we started researching this, we've done a book now on it as well, for What I Wish I'd Known When I Was Young. Um, we started looking into prime ministers and I think it was 65% roughly of prime ministers going back through history uh, to the very beginning have had some kind of childhood trauma. And many of them actually have lost a parent in their early years. I mean, just think of the recent past. Boris Johnson's mother was um, taken into a psychiatric unit when he was, I think, eight. Yep. And that had a huge impact on him. In fact, she herself said that that was the moment when his desire to be king, become world king kicked in because he wanted to sort of protect himself. Yes. Tony Blair, uh, his father had a stroke when he was 10. Tony Blair was 10. And he says that was the spur that drove him into politics. But I think it's not just ambition that people get. It's resilience. You know, um, Stuart Rose, the businessman, said mm. to us that early trauma, his mother... Uh, took her own life very sadly when he was just starting out in his retail career in his early 20s and he says early trauma is like a vaccine against future pain you know you can spy so you know if you're going into some sort of horrific boardroom deal nothing can be as bad as the pain you went through Um, and I also think it gives you an empathy which is so important at at work Um, someone like Mary Portas the retail um, again, she lost her mother, um, and she said it gave her an understanding. Of, she, she, it was the shopkeepers locally who looked after her and told her how to cook the meals for her younger brother. And yeah. What shop? What they said? What your mother used to buy was this, and then she'd make. Um, and it gave her an understanding of how people shop, uh, and that's been obviously the foundation for her career. Um, for other people, it's a sort of sense of ruthlessness. But I think that sort of... Time is finite as well. Yeah, exactly. And urgency is the key one. But if you... I think resilience, you almost can't teach it. You have to experience. You have to learn it through experience. So um, the rapper, Professor Green, puts it really well. Again, his father took his own life. And he says, you you know, unfortunately, there's only one way to become resilient. It's by suffering. And, yes. and paraphrasing, but where's that about? And that's true. And I think, you know, but I think you can, in education, teach that sense of grit. And it might be on a small level by learning to lose at football yes. or by, you know, trying something and failing. Um, and you sort of build up gradually that sense of resilience. But for those who have struggled, and had a, some kind of really discombobulating childhood, I think it does become almost a superpower for them. Or, and, ca- or it can. And the, I mean, the interesting thing is, actually, of course, for a lot of people, it does. And, and usually, the people we've interviewed who've been very successful have had someone else, some other kind of adult in their life, some for, source of stability. Yes. Um, which, which also, I think, for me, gives is a sort of source of optimism, because actually... If the state got its act together, we could help a lot of these children. Um, and it's also something that I was struck by doing some of the research around it as well, that it's true in the US as well, that lots of US presidents as well. This is not just a sort of UK. I no, and um, 
all around Europe, Napoleon, you know, is a sort of, it, so there's, it's, it's known as the, um, Phaeton theory, I think, but after, uh, um, Greek character who flew his chariot too close to the sun. And then, um, you know, that, that pain sort of gives you a sort of, uh, intensity of, of emotion that drives you on. This seemed like a relevant moment to take a quick pause in this interview to tell you about a charity that was recently set up called Elizabeth's Smile, which helps youngsters when dealing with the loss of a parent. It was set up by my friend Nick Hungerford, the founder of Nutmeg, who passed away last month at the age of just 42. The charity is named after his two-year-old daughter, Elizabeth. To find out more about the crucial work of Elizabeth's Smile, you can go to www.elizabeth.org If there was one episode that people should go and check out, which should it be? Well, we're at the Tony Blair Institute yes. uh, conference, so I think I would say the Tony Blair one because actually I've interviewed Tony Blair many times over the years and, you know, about everything from coming up farther to the Middle East yeah. to, you know, education, Brexit, but this was the most interesting and open and revealing interview that Alice or I had ever done with him because he talks about his own pain, but also the honesty of how his ambition create, it was created um, and how actually that's how his politics was formed because his father had been a conservative. Mm. So in some ways, and, and had wanted, to stand for a seat, he said in yeah, the interview. He wanted to be an MP. In fact, he'd wanted to be prime minister, a conservative prime minister. So Tony Blair almost felt the responsibility to go into politics to fulfill his father's ambition. Yeah. But he always understood what the other side felt and saw. So he was neighbor, but he always understood what conservative voters wanted. And I think in a way that was probably the secret of his success. Yes, very much so. Do you think he might? serve again find another job i don't i can't see him coming back into government mm. but uh maybe some kind of advisory role i mean and arguably with the tony blair institute he's become a sort of one-man think tank yes and in fact on the pan during the pandemic and subsequently he's really shaped government policy uh, yeah and i can see him doing that across party lines uh, yes, I think it's true, and it's good to see former prime ministers finding a role. Um, and the, but you know, these narcissists that name things after themselves—shocking! Yeah. Um, <laughs> or just go off and make loads of money. Yeah, you yeah. know, um, quite, quite. If there, one final question: Is there a young journalist that you are particularly impressed by, or a young commentator? that we should perhaps get on the show as part of our media series into Ooh, the future. I, there's a brilliant young woman at the Sunday Times and Times Radio and uh, called Shana Ivers. Yes. Uh, so she's fantastic. And I think I would love to be Charlotte at her age, if that makes sense. Totally. Be like a reverse mentor. If she, if she could be my mentor, I'd choose her. Fantastic. Well, that gives me a great excuse to get in touch with Charlotte and invite her on the show. Rachel, thanks so much for coming on Jimmy's Jobs of the Future. It's been brilliant. It's an absolute pleasure. Thanks okay. for having me. Thanks for listening to Jimmy's Jobs of the Future. We've come a long way since our first episode when I started recording this on my own in my daughter's nap times. We are now a team that not only pulls together a podcast, but also creates content on multiple channels, whether that is our Substack, looking at the latest trends in business, 
entrepreneurship and the future of work. Or some of our more lighthearted takes on TikTok. And of course, our best moments are on YouTube. To find all our socials and best content links, click on the links in the show notes below.